kings. So, yes, you have to keep those laws, but they are not bad laws. They're actually good laws. I mean, we all like it when nobody steals from or lies to us or something. It's just that as human beings, humans want to do those things to others. They don't want them done to them. So, if everybody would keep the laws of God, <clears throat> the troubles that we have in life would be diminished by a great deal. So I think that may be the reason that God gave the law on Pentecost is because it does give us a certain freedom and liberty. And in Acts 2, it's the day that the Holy Spirit first came not to just be with people, as it had been with some in the Old Testament, but actually to be begotten of it and for it to dwell in them. And the freedom and the liberty that is gained by that is important because they were given the commandments at Sinai, but they paid little attention, as we know. And mankind throughout his history has paid very little attention to God's law. And most so-called Christian religions today would tell you it's done away and you don't need to keep it anyway. But the beauty of the law of God is that if kept our lives are happier and more fulfilled. Everyone's are. But we have trouble doing it because we have a carnal human nature that is contrary to God, and we want to do things that we think would please us as opposed to what would please our neighbors and make them happy. And you can't really keep the law of God in the Spirit, as Christ outlined it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, without the Spirit of God. You just can't do it. So God gave us His Spirit. That's one of the things that, he, well, we heard this morning. He would send a comforter, someone to comfort us, to help us, to strengthen us, to show us all truth. There are many things about the Holy Spirit of God that are beneficial. But you simply cannot keep nor understand the way of God without His Spirit being at least with you as a bare minimum and dwelling in you as the biggest help that it can give. I was struck this morning a little bit on a scripture that Terry read. Uh, not that any of us hadn't read it before, but it happened to be one of the verses that he was looking at this morning. It's, it's John six sixty six. 666. Uh, I know God didn't put the numbers of the verses in, but I, I thought that was very interesting, the number of the verse uh, with what it said. Because what Christ had just told His disciples, it says, From that time, many of His disciples went back or went away and walked no more with Him. That's an incredible statement, really. If anyone was going to follow a man who had ever lived and walked on the face of the earth, you would think it would be Christ himself. And yet they did not have the Holy Spirit. They could not fully comprehend who he was and what he stood for and what a blessing it was for him to be there among them. So they didn't like something he said, and they turned around and walked away from Christ himself right there in the flesh with them. 
I don't know what chance any of the rest of us have to try to be leaders as flawed as we are uh, when Christ Himself, who had done no wrong, had many of His disciples, doesn't say how many, but many walked away. Never came back, apparently. Well, I guess that shouldn't really shock us in a way. He is at the right hand of His Father in heaven today. Uh, the Father and the Son as rulers of the entire universe, and almost everyone on earth has walked away from Adam on down. They don't want much to do with God. Now, you contrast Acts 2 to what we just, or I just read in John 6, 66. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came in power with a very visible manifestation that particular day, since he was sending that gift and he wanted it to be known, and he was going to begin a great gathering or calling of an early New Testament church to begin in earnest the selection of the 144,000. So he wanted it to be a very dramatic day, and indeed it was. But bear in mind that Peter, James, John... All the apostles were flawed. They all had problems. They all had human nature. They all had weaknesses, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, you name it, the works of the flesh. They had. And yet when the Spirit of God was combined with them as a begetting force, suddenly 5,000 rep repented and were baptized in one day. 4,000 another day. Suddenly, people's minds began to open because the Spirit of God was there. Now, was the Spirit of God in Christ earlier? You bet it was. In Him stronger than any human being who had ever walked the face of the earth by far and away. No comparison whatsoever. And yet... They looked upon him as a human being, and when they didn't like something he said, they turned and walked away. But with the Holy Spirit there, motivating these disciples, and it had be, they had been begotten with it that day, minds opened, people repented, people changed. So it shows you how powerful the Holy Spirit can be under the right circumstances. Now, we have to understand, too, that Christ was not opening those people's minds who went away from Him. They did not have the Holy Spirit themselves, and therefore, they had trouble understanding even Him. Now, He spoke many things to many multitudes throughout His ministry, and most people didn't get it. There was not one conversion as a result of His teachings. The disciples followed him, but it wasn't his purpose to convert the world, even the people around him, until that day of Pentecost when he began a calling, and what a calling it was. Well, we need to really understand and grasp what a great gift the Holy Spirit is, that when it does combine with our minds, they can open and they can understand. Whereas without it, they couldn't even understand Christ Himself and would turn around and not even follow Him. 
So what a miracle it is when our minds open to the truth and the Holy Spirit begins to act and react with the spirit of man which is in us, which gives us the intelligence we have as humans. So this is a very important day. It also pictures the betrothal of Christ, I believe. We've seen that before, where he offered himself at the Passover service and began preparing a people by them putting sin out of their lives for seven days. And then he comes in the springtime. It's listed in the Song of Songs how he would come to his bride at the time of the singing of the turtle dove and the blooming of the flowers and so on. And this is the time of year depicted there sometime in the spring. We're late spring this year, but... Uh, sometime in the springtime, but I see the turtle doves are still around mating and preparing to nest and so on, and the flowers are still blooming and would be blooming even more if we'd have had more rain this year. But in spite of that, I think this is the particular time of year that he's speaking of in the Song of Songs. And he had told the disciples, I will send a comforter, a, a gift to you, and this is... The Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost was the gift that a bridegroom would give his bride upon their engagement. Then we have a period of time through the summer where the bride is to make herself ready to grow, to overcome, to mature, to be ready. And then you have the Feast of Trumpets where she's changed. They have atonement picturing the marriage itself. And then the job of the husband and wife beginning with the millennium. So this is a very, very important day if you want to be part of the Bride of Christ. You need to observe Pentecost so you can be part of the betrothed bride, uh, part of the first fruits. Pentecost also picturing the first fruits. And perhaps we'll get to a little bit more about the first fruits as we go along. But I want to go back now where we've been a lot lately to Leviticus 23. Up to this point, we have focused primarily in this chapter on how to count to be sure we get the right day for Pentecost. I want to get away from that today. There is an awful lot here about Pentecost and the symbolism of it and what it means within this chapter as well. In fact, I think you could say that probably the most we know about Pentecost we learn from Leviticus 23. There are other places the holy days are mentioned, the offerings that were given on them. But if you will notice in chapter 23, where he goes through all of the different holy days of God throughout the year, uh, on a few occasions he mentions that they were to bring a burnt offering on those days. But he does not specify which offerings were to be brought on any of them except Pentecost. It's the only one in this chapter that it tells you what to bring, what kind of offering is to be brought to God on that holy day. So there's a lot about Pentecost here. He goes into it in more depth than he does any of the other holy days. I find that interesting to consider on this day as we sit before God, uh, Him being invited here to be with us today. So let's go down to the time he starts to talk about it here. 
in verse 10 of Leviticus 23. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you be come into the land which I give to you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So they reaped the harvest that first year. Uh, it says they ate of it the first year there in Joshua 5. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So they were to wave a sheaf of the grain of the harvest. This was to be done at the very beginning of the harvest because Christ was the first fruits. He was to be waved as he was after his resurrection before the Father, ascended to the Father, and had to be approved, accepted, or waved before God uh, before he could be touched. He didn't allow them to touch him until after he had gone to the Father and back and had been accepted as the first of the first fruits, as the first holy offering to God. So this was to be waved uh, on, this, on this day after the Sabbath, which was Pentecost here, as we shall see. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering to the eternal. So, the day of the wave sheaf, they were to offer a he lamb without blemish. And notice it's one lamb. Now, this isn't Pentecost. We're leading to it. This is the day of the wave sheaf, which leads to Pentecost, okay? But... That day was to be one he lamb for a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering uh, was consumed upon the altar. Uh, it made a sweet savor to God. The burning of the flesh or the cooking was a sweet savor to God. But there was death involved of the animal. As Christ was a sweet savor to God, even as he died for our sins. He loved the world, so he gave that son, and he took a godly kind of pleasure from seeing that sacrifice, because he understood the overwhelming meaning of what was happening. I'm sure it was a very difficult time for the Father, even it was a very, very difficult time for Christ. He was doing the dying. And he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He understood what his death meant to the world, to you and to me and to every other human being who has ever lived. So he was willing to do it, even though it was a, a very difficult thing. As we often say, it's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. And that was the dirtiest job there ever was. And he was the one who had to do it. No one else could. His life was worth more than anyone else's. So he was a sweet savor to the Father. And with it then, there was a meal offering. They call it meat in the King James, but it means meal or, or grain or that type of thing as opposed to a, uh, an animal or a meat, actual meat offering. The meal offering thereof shall be two-tenths deals of fine flour mingled with oil. So, <clears throat> about ten pounds, roughly, of fine flour. Now, why in an offering 
like this, does it need to be fine flour? Why couldn't it be coarse flour? Christ represents consistency. He represents smoothness. He represents everything uh, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he is very consistent. And beat up small, the fine flour gave a very, very fine consistency. Now he specifies with oil. We've got another offering coming down on Pentecost, and he doesn't specify oil at all. Why oil here and not down later in the chapter? Well, Christ had the Spirit of God. He had the oil, and oil does represent God's Spirit. It represents uh, oil of anointing or of setting aside for a specific purpose uh, for healing, and His sacrifice and resurrection are for the healing of the world, physically, spiritually, and in every other way. So, oil represents the Spirit. Remember the ten virgins, all slept, all slumbered. When they woke up, some had oil and some did not. So, it was scurrying for oil, trying to find oil for their lamps that they might see spiritually, might understand, and might be included in what was about to happen. does not pay to wake up without oil. So, Christ was the primary and leading uh, person who had the oil of God. So I think that's why it's specified here. It had to be fine flour with oil, an offering made by fire to the eternal for a sweet savor, and the drink offering there shall be of wine, the fourth, fourth part of an hen. So, a he-lamb, representing the Lamb of God, sacrificed for us and waved that day uh, on the countdown to Pentecost. And then the meal offering itself was specified to be of a loaf or bread and wine. What are the symbols of the Passover today? Bread and wine, representing the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. So, he specified these things. Now, if you go into other scriptures about all the different holy days, some of them have different and varying uh, amounts of, of offerings that were given for specific purposes. But I think this one, leading to Pentecost, is uh, very important. And the symbolism here is quite great. Do you realize that the... This year, the way it fell, with a Saturday night Passover, or beginning of Sunday, Saturday night, uh, and then the wave sheaf being on the Passover day, which was also wave sheaf day, it gives you a double symbolism. Christ the Passover the evening before, and Christ is a wave sheaf, wave sheaf the very next morning. So it, it doubles up the symbolism, makes it very, very powerful for these times when uh, the first day of unleavened bread, the Passover day, comes uh, on a Sunday, which it does occasionally. Of course, if you take the other week, other times, other years, when you have the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, 
the next day is a wave sheaf. So both get offered every year. It just struck me that both events happened on the same 24-hour period, same day uh, this year. I don't know what that means necessarily, but I just liked it. <laughs> okay? Uh, it just seemed to be a double symbolism, an important thing to me. So, that was what was being waved. Clearly Christ. All the symbolism there represents Him and could represent nothing else. Being waved for us. And He died, of course. That's why they had the burnt offering there. And it was a sweet savor to God. Nobody likes to see a son die, a child die. Of course, God knew He was going to resurrect him. But He knew it was going to save billions of lives. Billions of lives for His Son to die that day. When the plan of salvation is ultimately complete, Christ will have died for many, many billions of people. They've estimated 60 billion have lived since Adam. I, you know, that's just an arbitrary figure people have sort of tried to figure up, but it there's nearly 7 billion right here today on earth. So it's way, way on up there how many people this will save. So that, that part of it certainly is a sweet savor to God. Verse 14, And you shall eat neither bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. So as they were going into the land, it was at Passover time, it was at wave sheaf time. Clearly, they went in across the river on the 10th and kept the Passover on the 14th, as Joshua says. But this offering to God had to come first. What is more important in our lives than Christ's sacrifice and His life and His resurrection being waved before the Father so that we can escape eternal death and live forever. That's the most important thing that there is in mankind's entire experience is that sacrifice and resurrection. So, as they went into the land, they'd been eating manna for 40 years, and there were things there that they would have desired, obviously. But God said, no, you just wait. Let's put the spiritual ahead of the physical. Basically what he's saying. Spiritual comes first. So they weren't to eat of anything of the land until they had brought this offering before God. Now obviously they had to gather the wave sheaf uh, from the harvest that was there. God had given it to them so they could do that legally. And they would have had also to uh, put together the flour and the oil and the wine and so on in order to make this offering. So once it was done, they could have the produce of the land. But they were to take just a little bit first, dedicate it to God for a burnt offering and a meal offering representing Christ. So Joshua 5, of course, shows that they uh, ate of the land after they had kept the Passover the evening before. Therefore, they had done what 
uh, is instructed here. Had to have. Verse 15, And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to the Eternal. So, count fifty, seven complete weeks from a weekly Sabbath, not an annual Sabbath. And the fiftieth day is Pentecost. Now, we have the Jubilee year uh, every fifty years, and it's counted in the same fashion that you count Pentecost. Uh, I'm not going into Jubilee today because the Jubilee was to be declared on atonement, and it has a specific meaning uh, associated with atonement. But the counting is similar. Of course, there you're counting seven years, seven times, and then the 50th is Jubilee, in which all debts were settled and everything forgiven on, on financial levels and so on among men. But here you have a counting of seven times seven weeks, seven Sabbaths of weeks instead of years. But the liberty that Jubilee brings is also pictured, at least in part, at Pentecost, because the liberty from sin and death, the liberty from shame and guilt and confusion over sin that comes with the Holy Spirit helping us keep the commandments is also a very great liberty. So the counting is in the same mode, let's say. So this is partial freedom. This is partial release from human nature. Uh, you know, he says not to walk in the spirit, um, the flesh, but to walk in the spirit. And it is the spirit of God that gives us the capacity to begin to think as God thinks and to walk within the commandments, both on a spiritual and a physical level. Not to even think sin, much less do it. So that is what we are called upon to do, is bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, that can't be done. And when we're not close to God, and the Spirit is waning in us, or we're quenching it by not obeying in the way that we ought to, we find that we get more and more and more carnal and more and more fleshly and human. And then when we rededicate ourselves and pray hard and study and work at it, we begin to grow closer to God. And then we find that we can keep our thoughts, our minds, our reactions more on a spiritual level than we do when we're just drifting along. Uh, that's why we have to stay at it day and night to draw close to God and put Him first, as is given here. The first offerings went to God. Now, let's get into the symbolism in verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. So here we begin to get into the meaning of Pentecost from the standpoint of ourselves because we are called the first fruits after Christ being the very first. Now, two wave loaves of two tenths deals. Why two? Uh, that has been debated back and forth. The symbolism is not entirely clear. Some have felt that it 
meant that one wave loaf was waved uh, for those prior to Christ's uh, actual death, and that the other loaf was for those in the New Testament era. Or, uh, some have speculated one was for Christ who was waved earlier, one for the church. Uh, there are all kinds of different ideas there. I don't know for sure what is right. Uh, it isn't explained. But there were to be two in any case. Um, maybe it's simply emphasis. You know, we need help, we need help. <laughs> we're to be the first fruits of God. And they'll be beaten a fine flour and baked with leaven. So the first fruits here are depicted as baked with leaven. In Joshua 5, when they uh, did the Passover, they baked those that year without leavening for the first one, the one that represented Christ, the meal offering that represented Christ. Remember that? It says that they ate unleavened cakes, which gives more credence to the thought that... uh, that was the first day of unleavened bread, that Sunday. So it was unleavened. But here, representing the first fruits, uh, the first fruits are leavened. Well, if unleavening represents lack of sin, why do the first fruits represent leavening? Or why are these loaves leavened? Well, part of the explanation might be that the first fruits aren't without sin yet. Uh, you know, we have a way to go. So, if you wave it for the first fruits, uh, they do have sin. On the other hand, leavening does not always picture sin. Uh, we've seen there in, was it Matthew thirteen thirty three? I think it, I think if I, my memory doesn't always serve, but I think that's where it says that the kingdom of God is represented by leaven. In other words, it's something that spreads throughout the entire earth. That's not a bad thing. The kingdom of God represented as leaven is a good thing. So with us, I think this could be a dual meaning, a dual symbolism. A, first fruit people still have sin. B, the good leavening of the kingdom of God needs to be in the first fruits and it needs to grow toward the kingdom of God. So you could have both a positive and a negative connotation here with the leavening uh, being a part of the first fruits. One, one side of it could work for good and one side could work for evil. Maybe that's why there were two. That <laughs> just popped into my mind. may not have any validity at all, but uh, one represents perhaps the sin that is still in us and the other maybe represents the kingdom of God that is abiding in us that's pulling that direction. Uh, I don't know. Just, just a thought. Anyway, they are the first fruits to the eternal. Verse 18, And you shall offer with them uh, or with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year. Oh, why Seven. Why not five or four or eighteen, but seven lambs of the first year? I think here the symbolism of the wave sheaf rotating throughout the days of unleavened bread becomes important. Because he's speaking here in context of the first fruits. 
And the first fruits are all of those who are resurrected in the first resurrection as the bride of Christ. And some of them come from all seven, all seven of the thousand-year periods of man's experience, from Adam through the end of the millennium, 7,000 years in the plan. As I explained before, the eighth day of Feast of Tabernacles is people who came out of one of those 7,000-year periods. So we don't need uh, more than seven, just seven. And this is the only thing in the Holy Day structure at all that rotates. If it comes off the weekly Sabbath, the one just before the first day of unleavened bread in the odd years, and the Sabbath within the rest of the time, uh, it rotates through all 7,000 years. And seven lambs would then represent that. So these offerings that God caused to happen each had specific meaning. One young bullock and two rams shall be for a burnt offering. There were different grades of animals used in, uh, in burnt offerings to God. A bullock was a very large animal, and it was the most costly. I mean, if you offered a burnt offering of a bullock, that impacted your pocketbook a whole lot more than did a, a lamb, let's say. Much bigger animal, more costly animal. And a burnt offering, what does a bullock represent? It's a beast of burden. It's a beast of work. It's a beast of service to mankind. It also, an ox has or tends to have a very patient nature, uh, very hardworking and tireless, it seems. When you hook up a yoke of oxen or young bullocks, uh, to plow, they do a great job. Now, this is speaking of first fruits. What's our job? To tirelessly work for the good of mankind. There's not much we can do right now, but when we're glorified and become the bride of Christ and enter the millennium, we can be like the bullock. We can work long and hard and patiently and tirelessly to save mankind from himself during the millennium and to bring peace on the earth. So that symbolism here uh, can represent, I think, all of these can represent Christ to one degree or another, but they also represent the first fruits. Uh, the seven lambs may be representing the 7,000 years and the people called during those times, but they also represent Christ himself <coughs> as Melchizedek of the Old Testament who was there to help them. What good would Enoch or Noah or Abraham or any of those people have done or accomplished without Christ there with them? So all these sacrifices represent Christ in one form or another. But they can also have a dual meaning of the uh, the ones presenting the sacrifice who need the blessing of God, the expiation of sins, or whatever that particular offering means. So here you have Christ who can be represented as a bullock working tirelessly at our salvation right now. And we, who have been called and slated to do that both now and especially in the future. And two rams. 
not seven lambs here, but two rams. Now, a ram is not as valuable, so maybe he included two instead of one, but it is not a lamb of the first year, but two mature sheep and rams in this case. Now, when we are prepared for salvation, we become mature Christians. We prepare so that we can be ready to be the bride of Christ and go about the job that we have in the future of overseeing our children, that is, all the inhabitants of the earth. So we need to grow up and be mature and and prepare ourselves and make ourselves ready as these mature rams might represent us. Here again you have two, uh, the bullock being more costly, more important in that sense, and two rams given, maybe to up the importance of that. They shall be for a burnt offering to the eternal. So they were to be burned as a sweet savor, cut up, put on the altar, and burned. Not eaten, but to God only. You see, some of the sacrifices were eaten by the priests. Uh, They were to satisfy God and man, those particular ones. But the burnt offering was a sweet savor, and only God partook of it. The rest was burned up. It wasn't used for food at all by the priests or the people or anybody. A sweet savor to God. So what are the first fruits? God the Father is a doting Father. He doted on His Son. He guided Him and led Him through a perfect life here on the earth. He resurrected Him and put Him in His right hand. And you know what He wants now? He wants a wife for that son. He wants a full family. So he is doting on us. We are called the apple of his eye. We are called the first fruits, which uh, those are the ones you look for first on the tree, and hopefully they are the best. You know, if you go out to a fruit tree, I've done it many times, and I don't look around for the naughtiest, wormiest, ugliest, rottenest, bird-pecked piece of fruit on the tree. I look for one that looks ripe and succulent and juicy and just ready to eat, sweet inside. Well, that's what God is looking for in us. He wants no sourness, no bitterness, no half worms, you know, or or other things that can happen. Hard, dry, knotty, green, he doesn't, that doesn't appeal. He wants us to be ripe and fresh and sweet and ready. So, uh, these were to be offered as burnt offerings with their meal offerings and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor to the eternal. Now, notice here, he's more general. They could give a meal offering, they could give a drink offering, but he doesn't specify like he did up in verse 13, where it had a direct representation of Christ himself. Here he's speaking perhaps more in general about the first fruits, not the first fruit, but of us in general. So there's a little variance there. And there are more burnt offerings made. 
there are more people involved. 144,000 ultimately, and then billions when you include the millennium and great white throne judgment. So, more offerings are given. Christ never sinned. One lamb was enough for him to represent him. But we have sinned greatly, all of us, and there are more offerings given here, uh, and the burnt offerings, but it is also uh, a little more general. Verse 19, Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. Let's address the sin offering there. Uh, Why a goat? Now he says when Christ separates people, he says the, the sheep will be on the right and the goats on the left. A goat is represented, for the most part in Scripture, as being more independent, uh, doing its own thing, uh, not as innocent, get into mischief more than sheep. I've, I've raised both, and goats are always, always far harder to deal with than sheep are. They, they just are harder to raise, harder to keep in the pen, harder to keep out of the fence. Uh, on and on it goes. They fight each other more and harder, and uh, they butt sheep around. We've got some together, and I've, I don't often see a sheep but a goat, but I often see a goat but a sheep. So, they have characteristics that God doesn't necessarily... I mean, they're wonderful animals, don't get me wrong, all... All creatures of God like that are. But their personalities don't always depict exactly what it is God wants in His kingdom. Uh, he doesn't want a fighting, scrapping, butting bunch of goats throughout eternity, okay? Uh, he wants gentleness, peacefulness, quiet uh, in His kingdom. So this goat was represented for a sin offering. And it died. It wasn't eaten, but it was killed. You didn't partake of it. God nor man partook of this. A sin offering is not a sweet savor. It is not a pleasant thing to God. It represents expiation of sin. So a sin offering, the animal died, and it was killed and burned without the camp. It wasn't put on the altar. Christ, who, had, who bore our sins, was not killed within the camp or within the city. It was outside the camp because he was filthy with our sins when he was crucified. So he couldn't be within and he couldn't be on the altar because he represented sin at that point. Not his, but ours. And that explains why uh, the Passover lamb or the Passover animal that is sacrificed, Scripture says it can be a goat or a lamb. Why? Well, you could use a goat because the symbolism is correct. The goat is depicted as carrying our sins. And Christ carried our sins. So if you you used a goat or Passover, I don't know of anyone that ever has, but Scripture allows it. We prefer the Lamb of God. We prefer the gentle, loving, quiet side of God or Christ We don't prefer necessarily to think of him in terms of a goat, but he had all our sins on his back, didn't he? 
And that's depicted perfectly by a goat. Goats went to the left. They'd go into the lake of fire. And we would go into the lake of fire if we did not have his sacrifice to give us expiation, forgiveness, and mercy so that we don't have to die but can live forever. So this, uh, the sin offering here selected is a goat and can depict Christ as well. Two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, instead of mature rams here, the peace offering was something that everybody could eat of, okay? God could accept peace. Man wanted to live in peace. Christ, through his sacrifice, is the progenitor of peace for the future. So, a peace offering could be eaten, as I recall, uh, so everyone imbibed of a peace offering. It's something that was good for God and man and everybody. But the peace offering was represented by lambs as opposed to goats, or, or I mean uh, mature rams. Mature rams do some budding and pushing around and don't always depict peacefulness. But lambs are nothing but that you've been around young lambs, we have a bunch right now, and they, they jump and they leap around and they play, don't see them fighting. Uh, they're, they're just, they're agricultural looking, they're peaceful looking, they're happy. Uh, little goats are too, but then they turn into old goats. And rams can turn into old rams as well, and they can get crotchety. But you don't see that much with lambs. It just isn't. So the peace offering he brings out as two lambs. Verse 20, And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the firstfruits for a wave offering before the eternal with the two lambs. So the priest was to wave them. You know, Christ had been waved for us as the wave sheaf that we might be forgiven and accepted of the Father even as he was. But here we are, well, he was waved. Let me get that right. He was waved there on wave sheep day for us. But here, this is a wave offering uh, for the first fruits. Well, we need to have our sins waved too. We need to be accepted of God too. So those loaves, the bread of the first fruits, were a wave offering before the eternal with the two lambs. In other words, we need to be reconciled to God. We need to have peace with God. And it's the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost that allows us to have a closer, deeper, better relationship and peace with God. So the peace offering here, waved with the loathe for the first fruits is very important for us. I think that is one of the things as this world gets rottener and wilder and meaner and more warring that we can desire above most anything is peace. Peace in our marriages, peace between us and our children and between our, the siblings, peace in the community around us, peace in the county, the state, the nation, the world and even the universe. 
with Satan and his demons uh, contained and put in prison for a thousand years. That is going to... Boy, will that ever help bring peace. <coughs> so how are we going to bring peace to the world, brethren? How are we going to do it? We're going to have to learn the way of peace. We're going to have to learn to get along with God and have a close relationship that is peaceful, not having to be chastened continually, not having to be cursed, not having to be, let's say, disfellowshipped by God from His bride structure. We have to be reconciled to God and live at peace with Him. And the only way we can do that is through the keeping of His ordinances, His instructions, His rules, His commandments. And those bring peace. And the Holy Spirit helps us to keep those so that that peace can ensue. And then, once we have learned the way of peace, when Christ returns, He will have a beautiful, perfect wedding. Or, I mean, wife, bride. They will not fight. They won't squabble. They won't cheat. They won't... uh, hurt each other. They will work together in perfect harmony and peace. Hard for us to imagine. I mean, you know, human beings sometimes can have pretty good relationships and fairly good marriages, but there's nobody that has a perfect one. Nobody lives completely in peace without any shadow of turning or different opinions or, or squabbles or whatever. Uh, you know, once in a while you'll get somebody will say, well, we've never had a fight in our life. Well, maybe they didn't pull hair and swing arms, but uh, if you squiz them a little bit, you'll find maybe they didn't speak for a week, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Uh, it, was, it wasn't perfect as they would like you to believe. Anyway, we must learn the way of peace if we are to teach peace to the whole world and the millennium of God. So, we are waved before God with two lambs representing peace. Verse 21, And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation to you, a very important day. Seven of these designated throughout the year. One of the holiest days of the year this is. You shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Not just ancient Israel, but Paul spoke of uh, being in Jerusalem by Pentecost or staying, I think it was in Antioch, until Pentecost, or the coming of the Spirit of God on Pentecost uh, in Acts 2. So, a very important day that is still in effect. Verse 22 is interesting that it is put together with Pentecost. Uh, about not, uh, well, let's just read it. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap, neither shall you gather any gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them to the poor and to the stranger. I am the eternal, your God. Now, why was that included here with Pentecost? It was a rule. It could be applied any time in the spring harvest, the fall harvest. But he ties it together specifically with Pentecost. Now, how 
or what will the bride see when Christ sets up his kingdom on the earth and the millennium begins? They'll see a lot of destitute, poor, ravaged, helpless, downtrodden, ex-slaves who have been mistreated and abused in every imaginable way by the new world order and the satanic government that will rule this earth for a short while. They will have every need that there is. And we will have just been a part of the harvest of God, given eternal life, been told that we would never have any more sorrow, no sickness, no tears, no death, no loss, nothing negative in our lives forevermore. Now, we could just click our heels and clap our hands and go on about our perfect lives, couldn't we? No. You share that harvest that you had. Those blessings that God gives us in that resurrection need to be shared with the rest of the world that is poverty-ridden and destitute. So he brings this in at Pentecost because it represented that spring harvest of first fruits who would need to be eventually a part of the bride or be the bride of Christ and be the mother for all the children of the world that existed or survived and then in the great white throne judgment for all those people resurrected and they too will have been through horrors in life through death and will have their opportunity at salvation at that time so we're to be there to feed them to help them to be sure they have what they need you know we have the highest, greatest opportunity and the best resurrection, the Bible says, to be the very bride of Christ. These people will have a lesser resurrection. They will have lesser jobs, lesser responsibilities. In that sense, maybe lesser glory in a, in a way than the bride has. But they'll still be part of the kingdom of God as children of God forever. And they need to have everything at that point, that we have. They've been through tears and pain and suffering and death and loss. And they, too, need to be brought to the point that they will no longer have any tears, any pain, any fear, any sorrow, any loss. They, too, will ultimately have that. We have it at the first resurrection as included there in Revelation 21. They don't have it till later, and we're the ones that help bring it to them. In other words pass it along. Uh, Christ selected us to be part of the first fruits and the bride, and then we pass that along to the children and help him convert and bring them to spiritual maturity as adults in the kingdom of God. What greater calling could we have? What, what, is, what else is even important by comparison at all in the world? Nothing. Well, there's an awful lot here about Pentecost. I want to go for a few minutes to a couple of other scriptures. Uh, let's go to Romans 8. Uh, we were there this morning with Terry, but it, he didn't uh, cover what I had in mind to go into here. Romans 8, verse 16. Here we are on a glorious day, a day representing honor and acceptance of Christ as his betrothed bride 
to grow and become the bride ultimately. The coming of His Spirit, so much here that has so much meaning for us. But let's pick it up in verse uh, 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He did read that. We're not in bondage when we're serving God. This is something where we are adopted as His very sons. Uh, We're not strangers or kids from down the block. We're God's adopted children. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, we need to accept that in faith. We can doubt ourselves sometimes. We can look at ourselves and see our faults and our weaknesses and our problems. And we could waver or wonder. But he encourages us here. We are the children of God. If we've been called, given the truth, which is to set us free, been given His Spirit to dwell in us so that we might grow as children to be born into His kingdom. Verse 17, And if children, and we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Now when our parents die on this earth, we might or might not receive an inheritance. In most cases, not much. We don't, you know, we don't have parents who were Rockefellers or or Rothschilds or some of the wealthy families on earth. We might or might not get a spit and a whistle uh, as an inheritance. But here, we have been selected to be heirs of the universe. Heirs of the earth where we will live forever and control it and run it within the government of God. It won't be run like it is today by the corrupt people who run the earth with Satan as their mentor and their guiding light, or guiding dark, I guess I should say. We will rule in peace and happiness in complete organization forevermore as heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We have to suffer with him. So, though this day is a very important day and has a lot of positive meaning, we still have to deal with the reality that Christ suffered while he was on this earth. He learned many things by the things that he suffered. He had human nature just like we do. His body, his mind, his emotions cried out, for all the human satisfactions that ours do. He had to fight the works of the flesh. He had to fight the lusts of the flesh. The vanity, the greed, the jealousy, the envy. All those emotions came to his mind. Do we really grasp that? We like to look upon him as perfect, and he was. But he was tempted in all points like as we are. He had the same pressure points. He had the same triggers. He had the same desires of the flesh, whatever they might have been, the whole gamut. Otherwise, how could he be our Savior? 
How could he understand with compassion if he did not walk in our moccasins? The only real difference is he never gave in. The impulses came, the thoughts came, the desires came for wrong things. They went through his mind. They literally did. But he stopped them short before they conceived and brought forth sin. The thought or desire of sin in itself is not necessarily a sin. What does James say? When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. So the impulse or the desire or the thought that comes to our mind of something we would like is not in and of itself a sin. It's what you do with it once the impulse arrives. Do you shut it off and shut it out and not let it develop and become a sin? That's what we have to do. So we must suffer with him. And that's what we are here to do. We have to go through what he did. We are tempted in all points like as he was to turn it around. It's common. The things he was tempted with and that we are. So we have to go through it just like he did. Or he had to go through it just like we do. So think it not strange, the fiery trials that come upon you. Uh, We have to go through it. We have to face it and we have to defeat it. The bride of Christ has to make herself ready, remember. And we're not ready when we're walking in the flesh and allowing the flesh to control our minds and our reactions. We have to react as Christ did react. And there's plenty in there to show how he reacted to certain things and what our reaction should be. It is not a normal human reaction to do good to those who just slapped us in the face or to do good to enemies who hate us and do bad things to us. It just isn't natural. It isn't natural to turn the other cheek or go the extra mile. It goes against our pride, our vanity, our ego. Got to fight it. Got to whip it. Got to have the right reactions. And none of us are there yet, are we? So if we're going to be glorified with Him, we've got to suffer with Him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's no comparison. It's not even worthy to discuss the difference between our existence, sorted as it is today, and what we will be then. There's no comparison. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Even the angels desire to look into what we're going to be. It is a mystery to them. Even it's a mystery to us to some degree. We look through a glass darkly. And we can't quite understand what it would be like to be a spirit being. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. 
because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And if the world travailed in pain and agony and groaning in Paul's day, what is it like today with DuPont and Monsanto and the corrupt leaders of the world and how we've polluted everything on this planet? The air isn't worth breathing the water is not safe to drink. The food destroys our health and kills us. We are an absolute mess here at the end of this age. And the whole earth groans for the return of Christ and the setting of things in order so that everything is good and nourishing and fulfilling. Wow. And not only they, the world but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, when in a moment and a twinkling of an eye we're changed into spirit. So we're the first fruits, and that has great meaning for us, but we also have a conditioning, a trying, a growing period here. Uh, let's go to James 1. I've, I've got two more scriptures. We'll wrap this up pretty quickly here. To James chapter 1. And here let's pick it up in verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. And today we concentrate on the gift of God's Spirit. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Fine flour, in other words, as the meal offering for Christ was. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So he's speaking of the church here, and how we are to be of the first fruits of his creation. Mankind is the primary part of that creation. Shouldn't be creatures here. Creation is a better translation. If you say creatures, then you might include horses and camels, but no, he's speaking of humans and we being the first fruits of the humans. So understand what a great gift we have and with what thankfulness we can approach God. Wherefore, as a result then of what we have been given and of the future that is in store for us, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Now pride and vanity in human nature is not swift to hear. We are slow to hear, especially if it's correction. Proverbs says, correct a wise man and he'll love you. Correct a fool and he'll hate you. Because the fool is filled with vanity and pride and ego and he's not willing to listen to anybody. So, here's what we are to be. Swift to hear. Slow to speak. That's, that's a contagious disease we all have, isn't it? Slow to wrath or anger. Slow to wrath. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. If we're angry a lot, if we show anger at others frequently, that doesn't bring righteousness. 
Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now we have the carnal nature, which is the filthiness, the naughtiness, and so on. But the humility and the meekness is something that doesn't come by nature. We by nature are proud. We are not meek. We are vain, not humble, by nature. So you have to swallow that pride and that vanity and ego and be meek. That's the engrafted word. That's the Spirit of God working in us to create humility and meekness and be able to get along with each other. But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Let's not let today go by without making sure that we do these things better than we have been. It's easy to come sit here and hear. But to go out and do, that's tough. He is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way, and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. If we read scriptures here today, and we have insights to our human nature, insight as to what we should be, and we walk out the back door and forget all about it, what good did it do? But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You want blessings? Be humble, be meek. Don't be full of pride, vanity, and so on. Let's go to one more then. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. The beast is going to write its name in our foreheads or our hands if we will allow it. If we don't allow it, then we have this opportunity to have the name of God in our forehead. I'd much rather have that. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of great thunder. That's what he's speaking of Christ. And I heard the voice of harpers harping their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. 144,000 standing before the throne of God. And before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song with 144,000. I've thought many times in my life, I wish I could sing. I wish I could sing well. And others have said, I wish you could too. <laughs> but here's a song that nobody can sing but the Bride of Christ. They will be able to sing it. What a song that must be, that no one can sing it but them. And everybody will be wishing, I wish I could sing, but we can. And I can, someday. And I look forward to that. I read all those songs that's, that David wrote, and I think, what a musician. He could play the harp, he could play various instruments, he could compose music. Uh, I can blare, barely play the radio, you know, and, and, and that doesn't usually turn out good when I try it. But here we'll be able to sing with our hearts before the throne of God.
a special song that only we know. The 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Redemption will have come full circle. Will be spirit beings standing before the throne of God. These are they which were not defiled with false religion, for they are virgins. Their ears are pure and clean. They, haven't, they don't have the filth of the world in them. Now that doesn't mean they didn't at one time. Remember how... Paul spoke of Corinth as being, he would present them as, uh, uh, as virgins before God. Well, they were a very corrupt, immoral society, and they'd all imbibed of multitudes of sins. But they could be cleaned and presented as virgins before God, just as we. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Christ will never go anywhere ever again following this passage that his bride will not be with him. They'll work together. They'll be together at all times. They follow him wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Well, here's the bride of Christ pictured by Pentecost, the firstfruits, in the fulfillment of their calling, standing before the throne of God after the first resurrection. And in their mouth was found no guile, no hypocrisy, no lying, no pretense, no guile whatsoever. Pure, open, clean, clear, positive, uplifting, no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I've never really focused too much on verse 5. Without fault. Can you even imagine that? That you could stand before the throne of God accepting Christ as your husband and be absolutely without fault. Think on that. Aspire to that. Work on that. Get rid of our faults. Overcome, change, and grow so that we can share the throne of God with Christ and be utterly without fault. That's the calling of the first fruits on the day of Pentecost here in 2014 and into the future until it actually happens.